I'm Ashley Webster. I'm Kennedy. I'm Jason Chaffetz, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Monday, September 18th, 2023, I'm Mike Emanuel. The House is moving forward with an impeachment inquiry against President Biden, with top lawmakers pledging to follow the facts where they lead the investigation. But Republicans and Democrats do not see eye to eye on it. We are as divided as we've been in a, in a very long time, and the ideologies don't overlap as much anymore. That's what's really frightening for me. So people will pick their side over even some moral questions. And Lisa Brady. Pandemic learning loss is taking a toll in test scores and the future for students outside the classroom. So the worry is we need to spend more time in school and that's not happening. And actually there are critics that say we're moving in the opposite direction. And I'm Carl Zabo. I've got the final word on the Fox News rundown. House Republicans' investigation into Biden family business dealings took a significant step with the launch of an impeachment inquiry. Speaker Kevin McCarthy talked about what lawmakers are finding. I think you see the American public, we're simply following the facts wherever it takes us. But unfortunately, it looks like a culture of corruption with this family. House Republican Conference Chair Elise Stefanik took it a step further on Fox News Sunday. Take a look at what House Republicans have uncovered. We've uncovered dozens of LLCs by uh, Biden family members, including over $20 million, some of which came in while Joe Biden was vice president. So this is about Joe Biden and really answering valid concerns regarding corruption and national security. But California Congressman Ro Khanna, a Democrat, insists Republicans aren't fully behind this effort. I recommend an op-ed that Ken Buck, a Republican, has penned in the Washington Post. And he goes through all the facts and explains why there is no grounds for an impeachment inquiry. And this is why Kevin McCarthy doesn't have the votes. I mean, when we impeached President Trump, every Democrat voted for it. He simply doesn't have the votes on his side. Lawmakers are also pressing the Biden administration on the crisis at our southern border. Arizona Republican Congressman Juan Cisco Mani from a border state says it is a disaster. I'm telling you, you, you're seeing this in Ajo, Arizona, where people are being held in in literally cages in outdoor uh, facilities. Now, now we're still seeing, uh, you know, over 100 degree weather in Arizona right now. But the dominant news of the week is an impeachment inquiry against President Biden. It seems to be the question on everybody's mind right now is uh, what's next with this process. Tennessee Republican Congressman Mark Green is chairman of the House Committee on Homeland Security. But first, I'm totally in support of it. You know, the things that have percolated out of Jamie Comer's committee over the past several weeks is frightening, actually, to think that uh, the president could be above the law, that you know, some of the things that Trump was actually accused of have actually been done by the other side. I mean, people are really wanting to get to the truth. And that's the whole point of an impeachment inquiry is to do just that. It gives Congress more power to subpoena and things like that. So it's it's I think it's well overdue and looking forward to the next steps. A new Fox News poll finds that voters are split on this inquiry with 47 percent of registered voters supporting it. While 48% do not, does that surprise you, or is that just a sign of how divided we are as a country right now? I think it's more the latter. You know, we are, we are as divided 
as we've been in a, in a very long time, and the ideologies don't overlap as much anymore. That's what's really frightening for me. So people will pick their side over even some moral questions. I mean, I, at least on the other side, I, I, I can say they're willing to tolerate a president who may very well have been bribing a foreign government to benefit his own family financially, and they'll just vote the party line. And that's that's tragic. That's a sad place for our country to be. Let's dig into some of the work you're doing in the House Homeland Security Committee as its chairman. You announced last week that that committee will hold a hearing next Wednesday to examine the financial cost of the historic national security and humanitarian crisis at our border. As chairman, what points are you looking forward to highlighting most in terms of how this crisis impacts all Americans? You know, Mike, last week we had, of course, the human cost, and it was about the human trafficking and just the death, the fentanyl, the the stress on our border agents. Now we're turning to the dollars. Mm -hmm. And so I think some of the specific stuff, because there's a lot of things that people just aren't aware of, fentanyl-addicted babies that wind up having to be taken care of on state Medicaid programs. Uh, you know, everybody's aware that, okay, it's going to cost our school system because we have to educate, do English as a second language. But but something like a fentanyl-addicted child that winds up on the state's, you know, financial cost. I mean, it's a human cost there and a financial cost. There's uncompensated care in hospitals. You know, people don't think about that. Then why is my medical bill so high? Why is my insurance bill so high? Well, we've got 7 million people we're now paying for their health care. Uh, that's a lot. Uh, you, you think about the impact of that many millions of people coming into the United States on just the price of gas. I mean, if you increase the demand for a product with a fixed supply, you're going to increase the price. So there's lots of these things that people just don't think about the financial cost of an open border. And uh, Eric Adams is becoming aware of it, though. <laughs> mm-hmm. To that point, uh, the mayor of New York City obviously is greatly concerned about the impact of migrants coming to his city. We're hearing complaints from other blue cities. And meanwhile, you know, the border cities are struggling mightily as they get 2,000 illegal crossings in a single 24-hour period in the Tucson sector alone last week. And yet President Biden's considering the Remain in Texas policy that would make migrants stay close to the border while awaiting asylum Your thoughts on this and how it further impacts those border towns? Well, you make an excellent point. And I think the numbers, and this is is a couple of months old data, but El Paso, a city of less than 200,000, was seeing 870 a day. Mm. Uh, New York, a city of 12 million, I think roughly seeing 10,000 a month. So you can do the daily math. It's, It's not even comparable. And yet, you know, they're freaking out in, uh, in New York. Uh, as for this remain in Texas thing, it's absolutely absurd because it just shows their hypocrisy. You know, the Biden administration says we need workers in America. So let's open the border and bring these people into the United States so we can fill these vacant jobs. And then they say, oh, wait, now we want to keep them in Texas. Well, I mean, that just tells me the whole point really is political dynamics and voting dynamics. And that's what this is all about, the open border. And it just It just reveals the truth uh, behind what they're doing. 
Another issue your committee's trying to get to the bottom of U.S. Customs and Border Protection's phone app, CBP-1, which gives migrants in northern Mexico access to request appointments with customs officials, potentially streamlining border processes. You've waited more than 100 days to hear back from the Department of Homeland Security about concerns over this app. Have you heard anything, and do you plan to continue demanding answers? We have not heard. There's a critical component of this that they've not responded, and so we're contemplating a subpoena on that. We're, we're actually reviewing a series of uh, refusals to send us information. Uh, I went over the matrix last week, and I think we're going to be dropping some subpoenas pretty soon. But, you know, the CBP-1 app is, one, it's a violation of the law because the, the way, or at least the, the, the reason they're using it to sign people up and process them into the United States more quickly, it, it's not a legal pathway. There's no congressional past law that says if you use the CBP-1 app, you automatically get released into the country. It's, it's a violation of the INA, and uh, that's probably the biggest issue with it. And even courts have ruled that it's not, and Mayorkas and crew continue to violate both the ruling of the court and the laws passed by Congress. The wife of a border agent said in a hearing last week that every border agent, quote, can tell you exactly how to fix this problem, but nobody's listening. Why do you believe these agents' voices are not being prioritized by the Biden administration when they're on the front lines of this crisis? For them, it's about their agenda, uh, and they're willing to accept 200,000 dead Americans in two years. They're willing to accept a massive increase in human trafficking. We had, of course, Tim Ballard, the guy that the movie is made about, Sound of Freedom was actually made about him rescuing young girls trapped in sex slavery and young young boys. And um, we had him in, in our hearing and he said, look, Mayorkas knows his policies are leading to increased human trafficking and increased drug trafficking. He knows this. And this is a former HSI investigator. So if Mayorkas knows this and continues not to act, one, it reveals that they have an intent. And that intent is, as I described with Remain in Texas, they they just want to turn the country permanently blue. And they're willing to take the human loss to do it. So the difficulties on the Border Patrol just becomes another of their acceptable costs to permanently turning Texas, permanently turning the rest of the country blue. I mean, it's not even something we have to guess at. It's obvious with this, let's keep them in Texas deal. For those not familiar with your biography, you're a West Point graduate, a decorated military veteran. So I want to get your take on this. Ron DeSantis in the presidential campaign is suggesting sending the military to our border to get a handle on things. Your thoughts on that? I think the military is probably the only entity that can, you know, if you look right now being reported in open source is a massive caravan coming. You know, there's the Darien Gap has a ton of people in it right now. So um, we've got the one crossing in Guatemala. I think when it comes to those mass waves of people, the military, I mean, this is what they do for a living. Mm -hmm. Uh, civilian control in situations like that is something they're trained to do non-combatant evacuation operations it's all kind of falls into that lower spectrum of war and and i really think they're the only ones that can can stop it and remember trump put a brigade from the 101st down on the border uh when when he was challenged with a similar crisis Uh, i think the military's the best answer 
Okay, moving on to another topic that's top of mind for many, many Americans, education. You've recently reintroduced the No Obscene Teaching in Our Schools Act. Can you tell us a little bit about this bill and its priorities? Well, the priority is to remove this obscene material out of libraries for the most part, but we we have it across the country, and it's exponentially increased in the last two years. Uh, It's as if the American Library Association just wants to groom all our children. Um, They're sending these books out, and it, it contains basically obscene material that violates the laws of the states that it, it arrives in. And so what, what I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm a true believer in states' rights and federalism. Uh, so we worded the bill. It has to violate that state's obscenity clauses. And if it does, and that school leaves that stuff in their library, they're going to lose federal dollars. So hitting them in the wallet can obviously get their attention. Yes, that's the hope. You would expect that this bill would have the votes in the House. Any sense of whether it would go anywhere in the Senate? I need to sit down. In fact, I am sitting down with Bill Haggerty, my senator, on, I think, Thursday. So we'll be talking about that, among uh, uh, several other things. Uh, The the top main topic of that meeting is uh, to try to stop central bank digital currency at the Fed. But um, we'll talk about that, and I'll get a sense from him. I did talk to Marsha Blackburn last night about uh, the border security bill, H.R. 2, being on a continuing resolution, and uh, that was the uh, very good news that I got from her. So I think that will, that will be uh, passed in the Senate if we put it on the continuing resolution. He is the chairman of the House Homeland Security Committee, Mark Green of the great state of Tennessee. Thank you so much for your time. Have a great week, sir. Thank you. You as well. This is Carl Zabo with your Fox News commentary, coming up. Now we know what learning loss means. Test scores revealing a clearer picture of just how much learning was lost during pandemic lockdowns when 50 million children in the U.S. were sent home for a crash course in remote learning. And while that experience wasn't the same for every student in every school, nationwide test scores haven't been this low in decades. Only about a quarter of eighth graders, around 26 percent, able to perform math at grade level. And about one third of fourth graders are reading at grade level. This at a time when parents and politicians are part of a broader debate about education, including school choice. 83% of the richest people in America send their children to public schools. We know that any kind of scheme that takes money out of the public school system robs them of resources that are desperately needed. National Education Association President Becky Pringle says it's time for equitable funding of schools, that America has the resources to close opportunity and access gaps, and it comes down to a question of will. Senator and Republican presidential hopeful Tim Scott calls education the civil rights issue of our generation and says people have a shared desire for kids to have a better future. They want a better education. They want a lower crime. They want to be treated fairly. No matter what you look like. He chairs a school choice caucus in the Senate. Before the pandemic, the education department was tracking more than a third of U.S. students falling behind in their grade level. Now it's risen to about half of students behind grade level. Experts say that translates to about five months behind in learning, months that are not being added to school calendars. So is it possible for students to catch up? 
That's the big debate right now. I mean, and that conversation takes shape in so many ways. Fox Business's Lydia Hu is focusing on learning loss at the start of a week-long FBN series on education. Some folks have lost faith in the public school system. Um, You know, we know during the pandemic, roughly one million students were pulled out of public schools. They elected other options if they could. Charter schools, which I should note are also public, but they're different than like a traditional public school. Charter schools saw an increase in enrollment. Private schools saw a bump. Homeschooling did as well. And what's interesting is that it seems like those students are not coming back. The final numbers are not um, yet reported yet, but it's actually projected that maybe the move away from public schools, is, it's expected to maybe gotten a little bit worse even as we continue to move through the school year. So how do we how do we correct Experts have a a lot of different opinions, but it does seem that everyone agrees we just need more time in schools. And that's where it becomes problematic. Kids that are able to afford the additional education through private tutors or they live in a school district that's able to fund an extended school day, um, they'll maybe catch up eventually. But for a lot of kids that maybe don't live in a great school district or can't afford that extra help, they won't. And that's where the big concern is. But there was a study recently by Chalkbeat, which covers education issues extensively. They took a look at, I think it was 45 large school districts in the country to see, are they adding more days to the school calendar? And they're mostly not. So the worry is we need to spend more time in school. And that's not happening. And actually, there are critics that say we're moving in the opposite direction. Um, And we're actually seeing changes that are even taking away from the more time in school. And I'm happy to expand on that point if that helps. Yeah. I mean, I know there are some districts who've actually gone to a four-day week, right? Is is that something that's growing, for instance? Yeah. Actually, it is even growing. So because of the teacher shortage, the pandemic also made that worse. We have fewer teachers that are teaching in the classroom, which is unfortunate because we love our teachers. Teachers are great, um, but it's a hard job. And it was made difficult, even more difficult by the pandemic. And they're also not returning um, to the workforce like we are seeing in so many industries. And so some districts are handling that in interesting ways. They're trying to recruit by truncating the, the, the work week, going from five days to four days, because maybe that's a perk. They might not be able to pay them a lot more or more at all, but if they can say, hey, you only have four days in the office, maybe that's a way of getting a teacher in, in the classroom. Some other school districts are starting the school time later in the day. That's largely motivated by the science of sleep for teenagers, which is another topic we could talk about altogether. But that's controversial as well. Um, So there are a number of of changes that are happening that arguably are taking time away from the classroom rather than putting kids back into the classroom that are concerning parents. Not everyone likes to put too much stock in test scores historically. Is this raising enough alarm in schools around the country or is it mainly parents who are trying to adjust it, doing things like, as you mentioned, you know, choosing different schools or choosing to have kids you know, learn at home in other ways. Is this creating enough of an urgency at the school level, these declining test scores? Um, Yes. And there are a couple reasons we know that this is creating a lot of alarm. One is that the public school system is losing a lot of children. You know, like I mentioned, uh, roughly a million kids. 
if you are a supporter of public schools, that's a problem for a public school advocate because that means less money for the department, less money for the public school district. Um, we have heard the teachers unions talking about it too. Becky Pringle, who is the president of the National Education Association, um, that's the largest teachers union in the country. She was just on Fox News Sunday um, recently with Shannon Bream addressing this topic, acknowledging that test scores are declining and that it's a problem. Her response to this issue is that we need to lean into public education and listen to the educators and support them. We are also hearing about this issue on the campaign trail. You know, the race for the White House is well on. And um, we're hearing different ideas from the GOP candidates about what to do about it. Some of the ideas are are pretty novel. I mean, getting rid of the Department of Education altogether is an idea that has been being batted around by more than one candidate, at least three that I've counted. We even have the former um, secretary of the Department of Education, Betsy DeVos, who's called for the Department of Education to be disbanded. So I think we are hearing more and more from folks, whether it's in politics, you know, leaders of the teachers' unions, parents certainly, they're saying, hey, there's there's something wrong here with the way we're educating our kids in the country. This also becomes or could become a money issue later for the students impacted, right? We haven't even talked about the ones who have already gone on to graduate, for better or worse, regardless of how their test scores were or their learning loss. But there are analyses that have shown this affects them in the working world in terms of what they can earn, right? Yeah. There was a recent study from a Stanford economist who projects that kids that were in school during the pandemic might suffer – will suffer learning loss, and that will impact their earning potential as much as $70,000 over their lifetime. Um, So that's a way of quantifying that into dollars and cents. And when you sum that all up, it could amount to $28 trillion over the rest of the century. That's because the losses are compounded. You know, a kid that can't read by the time they're in third grade is not able to problem solve their algebra homework as well in high school when that time comes. The problem just snowballs and compounds, and that means later in life, they're not able to compete for jobs that maybe they'd want. Is our workforce going to be ready to keep up on the global stage? You know, we have a shortage of workers already. Other countries are dealing with learning loss as well. We're not the only one, but this kind of puts the race on to kind of recover from this, or are the best and brightest, you know, computer engineers going to suddenly really all come from overseas and, you know, be the best suited for jobs here in America? It's a big question. Wow. That's a giant snowball effect um, outside of the classroom, potentially. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is this issue of learning laws also affecting the way that schools assess students or have more students been failing or been held back a grade because of learning loss? Do we know? I'm not aware of any studies that are measuring failure rates or, or um, progress rates, promotion rates. It's possible. Um, what we do know is that while we're talking about learning loss and how we are grading our children, there is another change that's happening across the country where schools are considering adopting equitable grading to replace the traditional grading model. Equitable grading suggests that instead of 
you know, grading somebody on a scale from one to 100, like you and I probably were scored and educated under, you instead um, set that aside and you have other standards. No student gets below a 50, even if they don't complete their homework. A student can't fail an assignment, even if they're caught cheating. Students can redo, retake uh, the homework assignments almost until the end of the school year in some cases. Students are not rewarded for extra credit, you know, for participating, no participation points, no penalty for being late to class. The idea of under equitable grading model is that you're trying to separate knowledge and mastery of the coursework from what they call behavior. And maybe that works in in some schools, but parents that are living through this are saying, one, we don't like it because we're not teaching accountability and responsibility. Two, we're worried because learning loss is something we're trying to recover from, and we need students to show up, be on time, and participating. So if we're not enforcing that, and we're not making students accountable for, for being present and, and taking responsibility in their own education, then we're never going to recover from the learning losses, the feel. So there is a debate that's happening across the country on that. Another problem about this, about, you know, how, how are we holding our students accountable or are they, are they progressing? Absenteeism is a huge problem right now. Um, there are some studies that suggest absenteeism, chronic absenteeism, which is defined as missing roughly 10% of your school days, the rate has doubled, the pre-pandemic rate. So we have more kids that are chronically absent. They're just not showing up. And the theory is that during the pandemic, when it was virtual school, it was easier to skip, you know, or easier just not to log in. Or maybe you logged in, but you didn't really pay attention. And now that we're back in school in person, we've lost that routine of getting up at a certain time, getting out the door and showing up to class. And there's a lack of enforcement. And there's a big question mark about how do we deal with that? If kids are not showing up, the school can only teach a kid that's there. Um, and there's really not a clear answer about that, about what to do about that either. It's really an open question and a problem. So many pandemic ripple effects, including on education, uh, which is why it's the perfect time for the Fox Business Series this week on The Big Money Show, culminating with a live town hall event with former Education Secretary Betsy DeVos. That's this Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern on FBN. Fox Business's Lydia Hu, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Great to talk with you. Here's a look at the week ahead. Monday, President Biden expected to attend a Broadway for Biden fundraiser in New York for his re-election campaign. Stars like Josh Groban, Sarah Bareilles, and Lin-Manuel Miranda are expected to perform. Tuesday, get ready to walk the plank, mateys. It's National Talk Like a Pirate Day. Wednesday, Attorney General Merrick Garland is expected to testify before the House Judiciary Committee amid allegations that the Justice Department is being influenced by partisan politics. The hearing will put Garland face-to-face with one of his biggest critics, Judiciary Chair Jim Jordan. Thursday, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky will meet with President Biden ahead of debate over an additional $21 billion in military and humanitarian aid for Ukraine. Friday, Disney begins its centennial celebration, starting with an event at Epcot at Walt Disney World in Florida. Saturday, say goodbye to summer. It's the official start of autumn. And that's a look at your week ahead. I'm Matt Napolitano, Fox News.
Kudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Kudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Rate and review the Fox News Rundown on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Paul Zabo. What's on your mind? For three years, our kids and teachers dealt with learning via Zoom. Now they're facing a new challenge, learning how to navigate artificial intelligence in the classroom. 2023 will be the first year when students will have access to generative AI, a tool that could enable students to feed their computer a few words and create a response for their essay and homework in seconds. Just as calculators didn't render arithmetic obsolete and Wikipedia didn't erase the need for critical thinking, AI is poised to enhance, not replace, the rich tapestry of human knowledge. Just like calculators enabled students to engage in complex calculations faster and at an earlier age, generative AI can likewise advance the speed and depth of learning. Every transformative tool from encyclopedias to calculators and the vast world of the internet has faced its share of skepticism and AI is no different. As a parent, educator, and technologist, I have some quick tips and tricks that may help. We must adapt our teaching for this new technology. For my students, I ensure that there is more depth to my assignments than simply regurgitating information. Their homework must engage in persuasion or critical analysis, the very things that robots lack. In my classroom experiences, I will allow my students to use ChatGPT or Google's Bard. However, I warned my students that if using a generative AI platform is all that they do, their grades will reflect it. This is no different than in years past when a student did little more than a web search for their reports expecting an A. Fortunately, it's rather easy for the human eye to detect when an assignment, essay, or article has been written with generative AI. It reads as impersonal and is devoid of the student's unique voice. And I require my students to identify if they used AI and what types, making them acknowledge where they needed AI and how they used it. As educators, our objective is to equip our students to succeed in the world, and AI is an undeniable part of tomorrow's horizon. Instead of perceiving it as a challenge, let's view it as an ally. By integrating AI tools into our curriculum, we're preparing our students for a world where technology and human ingenuity coalesce. The key is to ensure that while they harness the power of AI, they value and uphold the irreplaceable facets of human judgment, ethics, and creativity. 2023 is not just another academic year. It's a resounding call for all of us to learn how and where AI tools may fit into our lives. The classroom of the future is here, beaming with potential and promise. I'm Carl Zabo, professor of internet law at George Mason University and vice president at NetChoice. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts.